0: Grace you and peace from God, our Heavenly Father, and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, This first Sunday after Christmas, we continue in our series, Unpacking Your Nativity, by focusing on the events in Luke chapter two that follow immediately after the familiar portion, the Christmas story that we love to read. And hear and see acted out every year the story of the shepherds and the angels of Mary and Joseph and a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger perhaps less well known in this Luke chapter 2 retelling is the events that immediately followed after for example Luke chapter 2 in verse 21 tells us that immediately after Jesus was born Or actually, not immediately, a few days later, eight days later, uh, he was circumcised. He was given the name Jesus, and that was the name that was uh, foretold or directed by the angel before he was even conceived in the womb. Now, uh, for any good Jewish boy, this is what would have happened. It was part of the covenant. It was part of the custom. It was the expectation within the jewish community and mary and joseph as pious god-fearing jewish people would have naturally done this but what's significant in this little verse often left out from our christmas readings is the connection it has to the covenant and the promises fulfilled by god for example In Galatians chapter 4, we may know the verses 4 and 5 well. When the time had fully come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. We often point back to this verse as a reminder that in this moment where Caesar Augustus has issued his decree and Herod the king had uh, had commanded the census that it was in that precise moment in the Pax Romanum when the time had fully come that God sent forth his son we remember that but maybe pay a little less attention to the second part born under the law submitting to the covenant expectations of Israel in doing so in order to redeem those under the law. So, for example, just now, just eight days after his birth, Jesus sheds his blood for us for the first time. Not yet in the shedding of his blood on the cross, but the shedding of his blood through the covenant to identify himself with us and with all humanity so that submitting to the laws of God submitting to the commandments, submitting to all of the rituals and the regulations, he might live them fully. He might fulfill them completely, and in so doing, redeem all of us who never could. Eight days after his birth, the little infant baby Jesus is already hard at work winning redemption and restoration for you and for all people. The story continues on in chapter 2, verse 22, uh, where it says, And when the time for their purification, according to their law of Moses, had come, they brought him to present him to the Lord. Now, this takes place a few weeks later. Uh, According to the law and the custom of Moses, it would have been at 40 days after the birth of Jesus. As Luke tells us, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Now in our uh, Christmas readings, these verses we probably often skim through and and maybe even just skip entirely because we don't find as much value in them. They're they're not nearly as warm and fuzzy and sentimental, but they do have some power and meaning, just like with Jesus' circumcision here, his presentation on the 40th, 40th day. There were two specific expectations from the law of Moses that needed to be fulfilled if Mary and Joseph and Jesus were to fulfill all that God had said. The first goes back to Exodus chapter 13. Immediately on the heels of the Exodus and the ten plagues which had befallen the people of Egypt, shortly after the institution of the Passover meal, that you probably know well, Uh, God said this to Moses, Consecrate to me all of the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast, God says, is mine. You may remember that the tenth and final plague in Egypt was the loss of life for all the firstborn of Egypt. What God says is among his people, all of the firstborn of both man and animal belong to To me, And what then became clear as he revealed the rest of the law and the commandments, the covenant, and the relationship between God and his people, is that every firstborn was dedicated and consecrated specifically to the service of God in his house of worship. First his tabernacle, and then his temple. But already here in Exodus 13, we get a sense that there's more to it than just setting aside some for this holy work. For he says this in verse 14 and 15, And when in time to come your son asks you, probably the firstborn, what does this mean, you shall say this to him, By a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that are first to open the womb, but all the firstborns of my son I redeem. For as God was beginning to reveal and unfold to his people, Setting aside the firstborn son and then redeeming them was a way in which he was setting them up for how he would set aside his own firstborn son and through him, through Jesus, bring redemption to the world. So for Mary and Joseph, their expectation was pretty clear. As their firstborn son, they were expected at the 40th day to present him to the temple and then to redeem him Uh, through the offering of a monetary gift. This monetary gift was also spelled out in the law. It was pretty clear. Take the Levites instead of all the firstborn, God said later on in Numbers, from among all the people of Israel. At this point, he had set aside a whole tribe. And so as a result, the firstborns of all the other 11 tribes did not need to go into service in the temple. Instead, there was a price that they would pay in order to buy them back for their family. Take the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel, and the cattle of the Levites instead of their cattle. The Levites shall be mine, I am the Lord, he said. And the redemption price you shall take is five shekels per head. You can see there on the slide, the note there, five shekels in the reckoning of the sanctuary shekel was equivalent to one year's pay for herdsmen. Kind of an average common wage, you might say, uh, five shekels for one year's salary. So, Mary and Joseph, uh, as they were going to the temple, uh, had brought with them this savings, a significant sum that Joseph would have accumulated throughout his life to that point uh, for buying back his firstborn son. But in this case, not the son that came from him biologically but the son that was entrusted to him through the angel and through the Holy Spirit of God himself. The money that Joseph would have set aside for his own child, he now gladly and willingly offers for the redemption of Mary's child. But that's one of two sacrifices that were to be made that day that tell us something about this family. The second is this. They were to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons, right? Not two turtle doves and a partridge in a pear tree from the 12 days of Christmas. These specifically were two turtle doves that were set aside as the lowest offering possible for a woman to be declared ceremonially clean after giving birth to a child was part of the cleanliness laws and rituals of israel and it's prescribed in leviticus 12 verse 8 it says this if she cannot afford a lamb the normal sacrifice for cleansing then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons one for the burnt offering the other for the sin offering and the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean so mary and joseph without much resources to their name seek to follow through on the laws and the commandments of god as faithfully as they could they bring their infant child jesus now 40 days old already circumcised according to the law of moses already given the name of jesus we heard about that on christmas eve that powerful name of jesus and now as they were entering into the temple to fulfill what god had called them to do now they had a divine appointment That will be the focus of the rest of our attention today, with a man named Simeon. Luke tells us that he was a man who lived in Jerusalem. His name was Simeon, and he was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, that's a very unique and particular description that we have for Simeon. We don't know much else about him, although custom tells us he was very old by this point in time. Some traditions even would say he was 113 years old specifically, right? That's not written in the Bible, but uh, that's an old tradition. Uh, but this description is similar to others that were used. So, for example, you might think of Joseph himself. Matthew tells us he was righteous and did not want Mary to suffer disgrace and so sought to divorce her quietly. Simeon, like Joseph, was righteous and devout. Or you might think of Anna. Next weekend you'll hear more about her. She was also righteous and devout and she was waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So it seems to describe women and men who were consistently faithful to the words and ways of God. Fast forward in scripture, we also hear Joseph of Arimathea, the man who donated his own tomb for the resting place of Jesus, described by Mark and Luke as devout and faithful. And Cornelius in the book of Acts, chapter 10, is described as devout and God fearing. And he was the one to whom Peter was sent and with whom God opened Peter's eyes to realize that the good news of Jesus was for all nations, Gentile and Jew alike. So this tells us that this Simeon, though we may not know much else about him, uh, was one who was well regarded within his community, was known by God as faithful and devout to him, and was eagerly awaiting the day that the Savior would come. Uniquely so, would seem because of an experience that he had directly with the Holy Spirit. Luke tells us, as he goes on to describe him, that the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him also by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. What this tells us is that this Simeon, faithful in his study of the Old Testament Scriptures, knew and expected that one day a Savior would come. The Lord's Christ is what Luke uses to describe him. And, and perhaps it was in his study of these Old Testament prophecies, according to tradition, in fact, it was specifically when he was reading through Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14, where we're told that a virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. It was that specific prophecy, according to tradition, that Simeon stumbled over and wrestled with and said, how does this even make sense that a virgin would conceive and give birth to a son? That doesn't add up in my mind. It doesn't make sense to me, humanly speaking. Perhaps that's the prophecy in particular that he wrestled with while the Holy Spirit said, tell you what, you're going to get a chance to see this very promise of God fulfilled before you die. And so while he was not a priest and so was not admitted into the central part of the temple itself, we're told that he spent all of his time and all of his days in and around that place waiting for God to come through on this promise. Both the promise of old uh, throughout Scripture and the promise to him specifically that he would see it fulfilled with his own eyes. And so it's that very Simeon a devout and faithful waiting for this promise to be fulfilled that Mary and Joseph stumble upon as they enter into the temple courts in order to present Jesus and their offerings in fulfillment of those Old Testament laws and expectations. When he, that is Simeon, came into the temple and when the parents, that is Mary and Joseph, brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law or told as Simeon took him up into his arms And bless God. Now I don't know about you, but as a parent, I think I probably would feel a little awkward if a crazy old dude came up to me (laughs) and tried to take my baby out of my hands, right? And so I don't know if they knew a thing or two about Simeon already that they graciously went along with it, or maybe he asked politely. And Luke doesn't just tell us that detail, Uh, but they they gladly and willingly handed their forty year or forty day old son into the hands of the Simeon. And then Simeon, blessing God, utters words that will never be forgotten. We know them as the nunc dimittis. And in fact, we will sing it a little later on in our service. That comes from Latin, from this first phrase. Nunc dimittis is now dismiss. And Simeon says, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Uh, Much like the Magnificat and much like the earlier songs recorded in Luke chapter 2, this simple verse packs in it, in, in its summary, all of the Old Testament promises that are now being fulfilled. Not just specifically to Simeon, the promise that he would see the salvation of God with his own eyes. Now you may let your servant depart in peace, he says. But also, my eyes have seen the salvation long promise. The salvation that, that is, is for all people, not just for the glory of the Jewish people, although that was true too, but also for all the Gentiles. It goes back, for example, uh, to Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, where God says to Abram, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Or going back even further to Genesis chapter 3, where we're told that the promise was given to Adam and to Eve, that through their offspring, the head of Satan would be crushed, even though his heel would be bruised. The first promise of redemption, all the way in the beginning, now fulfilled in Simeon's sight. And so it's fitting that this verse, the so-called nunc dimittis, would be part of the church's song and liturgy from then until now and until the day returns. But if you remember, from what I read before, this isn't all that Simeon says. There's what you could call a verse 2 that we often don't pay as much attention to. Here's what happens next in the text. We're told that Mary and Joseph, his father and mother, they marveled at what was said about him. And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. That is to say, he will be consequential. And it will lead to struggle, conflict, division. And we'll get back to that in just a moment but also very personally for Mary and for a sign that is opposed and a sword that will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Right, Not only is Simeon rejoicing in the salvation of God that is now being manifest to him, but he's also tipping his hat towards the suffering, the conflict, the division that inevitably follows. Now, for most of us, when we think about our Christmas celebrations, we think of joy, we think of uh, peace for all nations, we think of celebrations, and and indeed, there's a time and a place for that, and, and they shouldn't be overlooked or diminished. But we cannot forget that inherent and directly connected to the events of Christmas is also the division, the suffering, the pain, and the loss that Christ himself would experience, first in his circumcision and then ultimately in his crucifixion, and then through him that we as his church will experience in some form as well. Uh, It's often left off because perhaps we prefer to focus on the joy and celebration and the peace and goodwill among all men, but it should not be forgotten. And so what does it mean to say that this sign will be given to all people? It reminds us of what Jesus himself said later in his ministry. Matthew chapter 10 tells us that he said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. That is to say, for those who know and follow Jesus, there will always be tension. There will always be conflict. There will always be a polarizing effect to what he says and does. And so for you, as you know and follow Jesus, the same will be true. And sometimes that will make uncomfortable situations inevitable. And and not just the obvious ways that we are polarized, where what we believe and teach in a church is is increasingly rejected in the world, but also more subtle ways. When you gather with uh, fellow friends and family for Christmas meals and the conversation gets awkward around uh, some of the family drama that's unfolding. Or maybe when you're at a workplace or we're gathering with some friends and and the conversation turns towards gossip and you say, you know, I'm not going to be part of that. And there's a a little uncomfortableness in the relationship because you're not going to stoop to that level or engage in that sin. When you know and follow Jesus, it's inevitable that there will be tension and differences that emerge as you seek the way, the truth, and the life, and others prefer the way of darkness. And so as a result of following Jesus, uh, this will fall on you and on all people in the world. But it's not just external challenges that emerge. It's also internal. This is what Jesus goes on to say. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus says not only will there be struggle in and around you in other relationships, but it will happen inside of you as well as you wrestle with the way, the truth, and the life and how you fall short of it. Jesus says when you wrestle with your own sinful hearts and minds, it will lead to conflict in you. But in and through that same struggle, he can bring healing and strength. Why would we say that? Well, John says later on, if anyone says he was without sin, he deceives himself, and the truth is not in him. But if you confess your sin, God is faithful and just. He'll forgive your sin, and he'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. As you look to the words and ways of Jesus, you'll increasingly see how you fall short, but you also, by the power of the Spirit, will be drawn closer to him. As you do the hard work of confessing, of repenting, of laying before him your brokenness and your shame, then he will give you the healing that you desire and need. He'll bring you the redemption and the restoration you long for. Friends, nobody said following Jesus would be easy, although oftentimes it will be filled with joy. Uh, No one said that it will be without conflict or challenge, but ultimately it will be for your good and for the good of the world as increasingly you become more like Jesus, as increasingly you become more like all of his followers, increasingly like Simeon and Anna and the others who gathered to worship him there as well. And so may this Jesus, this Savior, who has come to bring hope and healing to the world, may he continue to work redemption and restoration through confession and forgiveness and repentance in you and in all people. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which does transcend all human understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus unto everlasting life. Amen. As you reflect on this, our scripture readings and our message today, we have two here in practice questions we'd like you to think about. If you're with someone, you can share your thoughts on these. If you're on your own, you can just reflect on your own. Here are the two questions. Uh, What from today's message, from our readings, from our preaching, challenges you the most? And then secondly, When have you experienced healing through pain? And what can that teach you about following Jesus? We'll have some special music playing as you reflect on these and share them with those you are with, and then we'll continue our worship in a few moments.